Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. This week, we're listening back to American author Chris Krauss in conversation with Una Malali. Thank you, everyone. Um, thanks for being here. I'm just going to do a quick intro to Chris, and then she's going to read um, just a, a piece of her writing. Um, so... Chris Christ, many of you know, is a novelist, a filmmaker, um, a cultural critic, the author of several books, including I Love Dick, um, Aliens and Anorexia, Torpor, as well as more recently Summer of Hate and Video Green. After uh, after studying in New Zealand, she moved to New York uh, in her early 20s. Um, She founded the Native Agents series of the influential publisher Semitext, where she's co-editor and published works by Ali Miles, William Burroughs, Kathy Acker, many more. Um, the writer Sheila Hattie is very often quoted about I Love Dick, and I'm going to repeat that now, when she said, I know there was a time before I read Chris Krause's I Love Dick. In fact, that was only five years ago, but it's hard to imagine. Some works of art do this to you. They tear down so many assumptions about what the form can handle in this case, what the form of the novel can handle, that there is no way to recreate your mind before you encounter them. So I'm delighted to be here speaking to her in person after we spoke over Skype a couple of weeks ago for an interview in the Irish Times. And I'd like you to welcome her all again to Dublin and for Chris to read uh, a part of I Love Dick right now, just to kick this off. Then we're going to have a conversation. Then there'll be time for some questions. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Okay, I'm going to read from the uh, beginning of the book and that way no backstory is required. Um, And, I mean, I guess Una and I, of course, are going to talk about this and we'll talk about it together later. But nothing in the book was made up and the book begins exactly where the incident began, uh, which is December 3rd, 1994. Um, Chris Krauss, a 39-year-old experimental filmmaker, and Sylvia Lochinger, a 56-year-old college professor from New York, have dinner with Dick Blank, a friendly acquaintance of Sylvia's, at a sushi bar in Pasadena. Dick is an English cultural critic who's recently relocated from Melbourne to Los Angeles. Chris and Silvera have spent Silvera's sabbatical at a cabin in Crestline, a small town in the San Bernardino Mountains some 90 minutes from L.A. Since Silvera begins teaching again in January, they'll soon be returning to New York. Over dinner, the two men discussed recent trends in postmodern critical theory, and Chris, who's now intellectual, notices Dick making continual eye contact with her. Dick's attention makes her feel powerful. And when the check comes, she takes out a diner's club card. Please, she says, let me pay. The radio predicts no on the San Bernardino Highway. Dick generously invites them both to spend the night at his home in the Antelope Valley Desert, some 30 miles away. Chris wants to separate herself from her coupleness. So she sells Silvera on the thrill of riding in Dick's magnificent vintage Thunderbird convertible. Silvera, who doesn't know a T-bird from a hummingbird and doesn't care, 
agrees, bemused. Done. Dick gives her copious concerned directions. Don't worry, she interrupts, flashing hair and smiles. I'll tell you. And she does. Slightly buzzed and keeping the accelerator for pickup truck steady, she's reminded of a performance she did called Car Chase at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York when she was 23. She and her friend Liza Martin had tailed the steelily good-looking driver of a Porsche all the way through Connecticut on Highway 95. Finally, he'd pulled over to a rest stop, but when Liza and Chris got out, he drove off. The performance ended with Liza accidentally but really stabbing Chris's hand on stage with a kitchen knife. Blood flowed, and everyone found Liza dazzlingly sexy and dangerous and beautiful. Liza, belly popping out of a fuzzy midriff top, fishnets tearing up against her green vinyl miniskirt to show her crotch, looked like the cheapest kind of whore. A star is born. No one at the show that night had found Chris's pale, anemic looks and piercing gaze remotely endearing. Could anyone? It was a question that had temporarily been shelved. But now it was a whole new world. The request line on 92.3 The Beat was thumping post-riot Los Angeles, a city strung on fiber-optic nerves. Dick's Thunderbird was always somewhere in her line of sight, the two vehicles strung invisibly together across the concrete riverbed of highway like John Donne's eyeballs. And this time, Chris was alone. Back at Dick's, the night unfolds like the boozy Christmas Eve in Eric Romer's film, My Night at Mods. Chris notices that Dick is flirting with her, his vast intelligence draining beyond the poma rhetoric and words to evince some essential loneliness that only she and he can share. Chris Goodley responds. At 2 a.m., Dick plays them a video of himself dressed as Johnny Cash, commissioned by English Public Television. He's talking about earthquakes and upheaval and his restless longing for a place called home. Chris's response to Dick's video, though she does not articulate it at the time, is complex. As an artist, she finds Dick work, Dick's work hopelessly naive, yet she's a lover of certain kinds of bad art, art which offers a transparency into the hopes and desires of the person who made it. Bad art makes the viewer much more active. Years later, Chris would realize that her fondness for bad art is exactly like Jane Eyre's attraction to Rochester, a mean horse-faced junkie. Bad character invites invention. But Chris keeps these thoughts to herself. Because she does not express herself in theoretical language, no one expects too much from her. And she's used to chipping out on layers of, com of complexity and total silence. Chris's unarticulated double flip on Dick's video draws her even closer to him. She dreams about him all night long, but when Chris and Silvere wake up on the sofa bed the next morning, Dick is gone. December 4th, 1994, 10 a.m. Silvere and Chris leave Dick's house reluctantly alone that morning. Chris rises to the challenge of extemporizing the thank you note, which must be left behind. She and Silvera have breakfast at the Antelope Valley IHOP. Because they're no longer having sex, the two maintain their intimacy via deconstruction. That is, they tell each other everything. Chris tells Silvera how she believes that she and Dick have just experienced a conceptual fuck. 
His disappearance in the morning clenches it and invests it with a subcultural subtext she and Dick both share. She's reminded of all the fuzzy one-time fucks she's had with men who are out the door before her eyes are open. She recites a poem by Barbara Berg on this subject, too, Sylvia. What do you do with a Kerouac but go back and back to the sack with Jack? How do you know when Jack has come? You look on your pillow and Jack is gone. And then there was the message on Dick's answer phone. When they came into the house, Dick took his coat off, poured them drinks, and hit the play button. The voice of a very young, very California woman came on. Hi, Dick. This is Kyla. Dick, I, I'm sorry to keep calling you at home, and now I've got your answering machine. And, and I just wanted to say I'm sorry how things didn't work out the other night. And I know it's not your fault, but... I, I guess all I really wanted to say was just thank you for being such a nice person. <laughs> now I'm totally embarrassed, Dick mumbled charmingly, opening the vodka. Dick is 46 years old. Does this message mean he's lost? And if Dick is lost, could he be saved by entering a conceptual romance with Chris? Was the conceptual fuck merely the first step for the next few hours? Silver and Chris discussed this. And I'll stop here so that we can talk. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get into um, that particular book, I'd just like to know a little bit more about you and your background. What where would you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, where did you grow up? Where did you study? And, and what were your, your teens and your 20s like? Oh, well, um, my family emigrated to New Zealand from the U.S., from uh, a town, you know, on the northeast, uh, in a blue-collar town in Connecticut, um, at the end of the 60s. So I partly grew up in New Zealand. I went to high school and I went to university in New Zealand. Um, and then I worked on the newspapers there until I was 21 um, and I realized I didn't want to be a journalist for the rest of my life but like I was already kind of established as a journalist I thought I wanted to be an actress and the only way really to kind of stop having this kind of at the time it was you could have quite a comfortable life being a journalist and the only way to stop this was really to leave New Zealand I couldn't possibly kind of give up my nice flat and car and go live in a squat with a bunch of artists I had to go to New York to do that <laughs> so I did and then I suffered horribly for the next 10 years <laughs> when before you were writing I Love Dick, when you were about to write it, what was your life like at that time? Well, it was a very frustrating life. Um, it, I mean, I had become very frustrated with my life by that point. I mean, you, you know, in a sense, there's nothing to complain about. I was married to Sylvia. He was 18 years older than me. Um, he was very well known at the time. He had, you know, was a tenured full professor at Columbia, but he was very well known for introducing French theory to the U.S. So he was known in more glamorous realms, you know, outside academe and Columbia. Um, the art world had picked up on French theory, so we would kind of go around North America, Europe. We'd go around really all over the place, and he liked to travel a lot, and all his attention would be paid to Silver. So. I had an excellent window on the cultural world 
um, as a very minimally participant observer, mostly at Silvers plus one. I mean, we'd go around together and, you know, I'd ask somebody something and they'd look at him when they answered. So by the time I was 35 or so, I realized this was becoming unbearable and I didn't know what I would do to change it. What kind of book did you set out to write? Did you know what kind of form you wanted to use? I didn't set out to write a book. I mean, I set out to have an affair with Dick. Um, <laughs> it really, I mean, it's completely straight up the way the book goes. You know, all the letters in the front of the book, it was just letters. And I, I walked around, you know, like this kind of obsessed graphomaniac for about a year with this folder with like 500 pages of bulging letters. And it was really only later that I realized that I was writing a book. And, you know, at that point, I started acting like a writer. You know, I went away to the desert, I rented a cabin, I started saying, I'm going to write four pages a day. And, and that was when I kind of, and then I knew I was writing a book. But, you know, all of the raw material of the book, all the stuff in the letters, that was just, you know, that, that just happened. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, is, is that okay? On? Yeah, yeah, that's on. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, that ob obsession, you know, that Chris or you has with with Dick in the book, and that very, um, you know, juvenile obsession almost. Why do you think humans do that set, that to themselves, and why do you think we can't seem to get a grip? with ourselves when it comes to crushes and lust? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, definitely women are more prone to doing it than men. Would you not agree? I don't know. I don't know, maybe not? Maybe mm -hmm. not? Or maybe it's just kind of more kind of a, a, a kind of culturally mandated thing mm. for women to do. We can talk about it more. Maybe men can talk about it less, but I mean, you, you, you want to know the unknowable, right? And, and I think that you, you designate this person as a signifier of the unknowable, right? You invest this person with a power that really, I mean, no person, I mean, if you live with this person for two years, they don't have that power anymore. They're just like an, a regular person. But the unattainable is so incredibly seductive. Um, we, we, were, we were talking before we started. I, I, I was telling you about um, this journalist, very distinguished, older woman, political journalist, Katha Pollitt, one of, the, you know, one of the main editors of the magazine The Nation. Her partner walked out on her in this shocking, abrupt way. Um, and she wrote this really famous and much criticized essay two years later about how she had cyber-stalked him for like a couple of years trying to figure out like, you know, the more she knew, the more she wanted to know, but none of the things, you know, none of the things answered the question that she needed to know, which was why did he leave? And finally it stopped at a teal couch. You know, they were, she and her new partner were subletting their apartment or something and she tracked this out on Craigslist and she saw a photo of the living room and they're taught that the couch was teal and suddenly she didn't need to know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> What happened with the cease and desist letters in terms of the, the publication of the book? 
Well, um, when he found out that it was going to be a book, you see, all through this adventure, he never told me to stop. If he'd ever said, I can't stand it, stop it, don't send these to me, don't get lost, I never want to hear from you again, I, I would have stopped. But he never said that, and neither did he respond. So he kind of became the perfect blank screen to write on. And when he found out it was going to be a book, he was upset, and he hired, you know, just kind of this cheesy, you know, um, a la carte lawyer to send a cease and desist letter. And um, I called him up, and I said, you know, why don't you write the introduction, and then people will see we're in on it together. It'll be a joke that we cooked up together. It was never against you. And he, like, utterly refused to do this. And we thought, okay, we're going to publish the book. I mean, there's really no, there's nothing libelous in the book. He's not identified by his surname. I change his physical appearance. I don't mention his books. I don't mention anything about him that, that he hasn't published himself on the public record. So there's really, I mean, where, where are you going to sit? <laughs> Good point. Um, there were two key releases of, or publications of, of I Love Dick. First in the... 97, and then 10 years later. Why do you think it resonated really only 10 years later with people? And the, 2006 was the second publication. Right, right. And yeah, it, when it was published in 2006, people acted as if the book had just come out for the first time. And um, I think it's because that was like that moment when everybody had started to be online all the time, all the time. And um, a lot of very brilliant young women had started their own blogs. Tumblr was, a, it was still a really big thing, and a lot of creative people were using Tumblr, including these kind of brilliant younger women, who most of whom went on to become published writers in the next few years. Emily Gould was blogging, Kate Zambrino was blogging, Jackie Wang, the poet Ariana Raines, and I'm just naming four contemporaries in the US. I'm sure there are tons in Ireland and other parts of the UK. Um, so it was like the book, some, the book was picked up by these women and they talked about it, but it was almost as if the book was part of the blogging movement itself. I mean, the book was written in that same kind of loose, direct conversational style that could have been a blog. Mm. So from the blogging thing, it kind of spread out very quickly, you know? Why do you think young female artists in particular latched onto it so much and use it as this touchstone now? Well, I mean, for, I guess, obvious reasons, because even, even though the writer is a, a middle-aged woman, um, she's kind of trying to revisit an adolescent moment. You know, she's like trying to replay what it's like to have an adolescent crush. And the questions of privacy that the book raises, and that were certainly amplified by Dick's attempt to block the publication of the book. These became really important questions to that generation of women who were blogging around 0506, these questions of privacy. And you know that was something that I think women really had to reclaim the right to use, you know, to, to break this kind of, you know, under the table vow of privacy that women had took for generations not to speak of things that went on in their relationships with men, to edit out that whole part of their lives and to kind of maintain this vow of silence to the patriarchy. 
And, you know, that was just not going to happen anymore. Mm. You know, by blogging, women were breaking that veil of silence. And I think that they saw this book as a kind of precedent. Mm. At the same time, though, when the book took off in those circles, we spoke before about this idea of internet feminism and, and the mild tyranny of people being constantly offended and these things blowing up and people being overly sensitive. Yet, it still forms part of a mo new movement of feminism, I suppose. I mean, what do you think about that culture? Yeah, well, I think it's very important for people to claim the right, for women as people, to claim the right to use their own lives as material. But I mean, then the question is, what life? Who is the person and what is their life and what are their interests? And if their only interests are in kind of fashion, romance, sex, and dating, then it doesn't lend for a lot of very interesting material. I mean, for me, being able to sort of speak in the first person and claim the rights to my own life, I mean, that kind of opened up to a much larger world. And as I started writing, I mean, first I was writing in my immediate circle, but the emotion that that opened up kind of became a channel for connecting to a lot of things outside myself. I, you know, I wanted to write about the Guatemalan Civil Wars and I traveled to Guatemala during the time of this crush and I did a lot of reading and research about Guatemala. Um, I wrote about art history. I wrote about what happened to the second wave feminists and the way they were marginalized and villainized and many of them became really you know, mentally ill and not present in the culture in the way they should have been. I mean, whatever little injustices were done to me became a lever for experiencing much larger injustices in the world that I wanted to speak about. So that's kind of a different agenda than just focusing on the kind of microscopic injustices that are done to oneself as a kind of relatively privileged, you know, white first world person, right? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the book is going to go where it goes, and it's going to be picked on, you know, it's going to be championed by who it's going to be championed by. I don't really have any control about that. But the internet feminism thing, I mean, these rights that people insist upon, and, you know, the injustices that they're protesting against, I mean, really, you know, um, they seem so small, some, you know, somehow. It, seem, it seems as if it's very misplaced. Yeah. Moving on to... Um another book uh, that you wrote, Aliens and, and Anorexia. Yeah. And a bit of that starts out with um, a lot of references to Ulrika Meinhof, um, one of the founders of the Red Army faction. And there's a line that you write, um, she was the token woman on every panel and yet she didn't take her life. Um, and I was just thinking about w when and why did your interest in her begin? And secondly, that line is quite dark. Is that about the frustrations that she might have felt as a woman, or is it about the discussion around her apparent suicide that maybe wasn't suicide? Oh, well, that's a really big question. I mean, the whole Ulrika Meinhof question. I really kind of got into studying Ulrika Meinhof. Um, and uh, early on, she wrote a screenplay uh, she, 
She worked with, I mean, I, I, I don't know if anyone here is familiar, but I mean, for a journalist, it's kind of an, and, you know, I was a former journalist, and she had been a political journalist, Ulrika Meinhof, before she became, you know, an activist, sort of slash alleged terrorist with the Bader Meinhof gang. But she was always looking for ways out of that very circumscribed, limited, kind of German intellectual, upper middle class intellectual slot that she inhabited in the first part of her life. Um, and and she, I, she did these, this research about these girls in reform school. And she wrote a screenplay that was kind of totally out part, outside of her journalistic work. And she really started to empathize with these girls in this fascinating way. Um, she was always looking for these kind of escape hatches, I think, from the confines of her life um, to take her someplace else. And is that where you're interest lay with her, that idea of escaping one's life? Well, I just, I've just found the story so touching. I mean, those last writings of hers in prison, you know, this text that she wrote when she was in solitary confinement, and I think I know it by heart, you know, feeling your head exploding, feeling your brain on the point of bursting to bits, feeling your brain like a dried fruit, feeling your spine jammed up into your brain and feeling your brain like a dried fruit. I mean, she was in solitary confinement in a small cell for like nine months, and it was so touching to me because it was as if this, this, this horrible experience had catapulted her out of this kind of the confines of this kind of intellectual, literal mind into this very kind of messy, bleedy, you know, visceral experience that she'd written about as a journalist in these girls, in these teenage girls, mm -hmm. you know, sort of something about being thrown back into a very physical embodied state. So I, I just found the whole story of her life so touching. Apart from, from that element of aliens and anorexia, and there's loads of ama amazing parts of it, obviously, but one of the great lines that I enjoyed was, um, I thought he was a genius, i.e. we hated the same people. Right. Um, <laughs> and there are so many moments in your books where there are those real one-liners that are just moments of clarity that pierce the page. And I was just wondering, are those things that can come to you, you know, late at night? Are they notes that you take? Are they very intentional little nuggets um, in the pages? Because very, there's so much honesty to those little... No, it's like talking to somebody, you know? It's much more like, it's like, you know, telling a story. And that was, you know, when I started, all my books are kind of written a little, are, are written greatly differently. But the thing that I learned really when I started writing I Love Dick, because it was letters, um, and, you know, you write a letter, you're trying to entertain somebody in a way. You speak differently, you know, you speak differently to every person and every, you know, every addressee you speak differently to. Just like in your life, you speak differently to every person. You're playing to your audience always in life, we are. So when I started writing, it was really kind of this idea of telling a story and, you know, trying to be a little witty and trying to be engaging and not getting too bogged down. And yes, you know, being you know, the self-deprecation thing, you know, that's such a kind of New York Jewish comedy thing, right? So familiar to me. Mm. Um, but I guess more male than female, because when women do it, you get criticized for like, oh, she has such a poor self-image, you know? <laughs> When a guy does it, it's kind of, you know, it's witty, it's comedy. When a woman does it, like, oh, she doesn't like herself. 
But yeah, always sort of trying to crack a joke, you know, to kind of bring things alive. Humor is one of the things that really comes out of a lot, a lot of your writing. And I know that you said before um, that you feel like satire is underrepresented in, in culture. First of all, why do you think that is? And second of all, in terms of that self-deprecation, do you think that television has been a good space for that for women with Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer and Jill Soloway's work? Yeah, television has been a fantastic space for women in comedy. I mean, Orange is the New Black is as much a show about women or more a show about women than it is about the prison system. Um, it's, uh, and, you know, like, I Love Dick actually is going to be a television show by the people who made Transparent. Transparent, Jill Soloway's work, another great one. Um, satire, though, remains a little bit underrepresented. And, you know, satire is dangerous. Um, I think people forget, I think people forget that like the best satire is not this kind of very broad stroke political satire. I mean, in the US political satire is like you're satirizing people who are like cyborgs, you know. American politicians, it's like nothing could be further from one's own real life. But say for a writer to satirize other writers, you know, the great 18th century English tradition of satire, they were really kind of getting out on a limb because they were kind of satirizing people, sometimes other writers more powerful than them, mm -hmm. satirizing people in their own world. And, um, and that, that's amazing. That's just wonderful. I love that. Do you enjoy conflict? Sorry? Do you enjoy conflict? Conflict? I, no, I don't enjoy conflict, but I believe that conflict is ever-present. And I believe that one of the jobs of art and writing is to bring conflict from under the table and put it on the table mm. to expose the conflict that already exists. You know? I mentioned Lena Dunham's um, girls there, and, and she, she is somebody who, who references I Love Dick quite a lot in terms of the influence that it had on her. Um, are you surprised by how far it's traveled and how big it's become? And you were saying before, we came on that it has been in, translated into Dutch and now Swedish and Turkish. How do you feel about that journey that it's gone on? It's really funny. I mean, the tipping point for me was a few years ago when a friend of mine, you know, called and said, you know, I was I was on this uh, British Airways flight, and did you know I Love Dick is in the airline magazine? <laughs> I mean, that was like the great signifier of like a book that's mainstream, it's in an airline magazine, and after that, it's like, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I mean, it's like, I don't feel vindicated, because when I wrote the book, it was never my goal to be in Marie Claire. That wasn't what I had in mind at all. I just wanted all the people, all the smart people that I admired to like the book. That was my goal. Um, but it sort of moves out into the culture in this unexpected way, and it's great. And I'm touring with it this month. I won't do it again. I don't want to spend all my time, you know, uh, with a book that, you know, I cut the cord from 18 years ago. 
I want to write another book, but neither would I recant it. I mean, it would be a horrible, evil thing. I think it's a horrible, evil thing whenever anybody recants something that they, written, that they wrote years ago that's meaningful to other people, to trash these other people's experience of it. I mean, in a way, that's, that feels wrong, because it doesn't even belong to you anymore. Mm. And tell me about the book that you're writing about right now, about um, Kathy Acker. For people who might be less familiar with her work, um, why are you writing it? What is it about her that you respond to, and, and what's it going to be like? Well, um, are people more or less, do people know who Kathy Acker was? More yes than no? Yeah, it's more yes than no. Okay. Okay, so um, I didn't really know Kathy, and she was, you know, she's like a sort of generation or half generation older than me. But we were definitely in the same rooms at the same time. When I first came to New York, she was very established, and I read her work, and it was, like everybody else, I was extremely excited and moved by her early work that was circulating kind of in zine form and small press form. Um, I definitely watched her career over the years, and then when I moved to L.A., I was friends with the guy, Matthias Wegner, who ended up taking care of her when she had cancer and when she died in Mexico and who became her executor. So I was kind of, she didn't like me to the extent that we knew each other. She really didn't like me because she was a serious girlfriend of Silvera's before Silvera and I knew each other. So the couple of times we crossed, she was really kind of shitty. But, um, <laughs> but I was kind of around at the time of her death and I was really shocked and moved by how few people were actually there when she died compared to like where she was at the, tight, at the height of her mega fame. And I was just kind of starting to publish books and somehow that radicalized me. It's like, oh, this is where it, this is how it ends up. And I, I thought, I really want to write about this. Um, but then it was too soon and people were, when I left Dick came out, people were starting to say, oh, she's just this kind of aspirational third-rate Kathy Acker. And I thought, well, if I write a book about her, that's just going to perpetuate <laughs> this course. I better not do it. Um, but now, like a couple years ago when I started to work on the book, these people of her generation have started to come out with their memoirs about how great the 70s and 80s were. And it's like, ugh. You know, I, they were a horrible time. The 80s were the worst time of my life. Um, I would never write a memoir. I wasn't doing anything, so there'd be no reason to write a memoir. Um, but I definitely saw writing about Kathy as a way of kind of demythologizing not just the mythology that Kathy created for herself and looking at her life in more realistic terms, but revisiting these scenes in the culture in the late 20th century through a less nostalgic and mythological lens. So the, sub, the subtitle of the book, it's, it's The Childlike Life of the Black Tarantula's title, but the subtitle is A 20th Century Fable. And the book is really an attempt to kind of trace a secret history of the late 20th century from 1971 on. That's where it begins when she was 23 and she's turning to write until she died in 1997. Mm. About that, um, those myths that uh, are being perpetuated now about 70s and 80s in, in New York, why 
do you think that, that it has been mythologized so much? And what was your experience of that time? Because now a lot of people think that was the most creative time uh, in the 20th century in America, was the coolest time, the people were the most fascinating people. I mean, what was your experience of being there and why do you feel like um, how people speak about it now is not necessarily very authentic? Well, the thing that seems most false is this kind of crazy nostalgia fest, as if the art world is really any different, you know, as if artists were only working for each other and there was no competition and there were no galleries and there was no star system and no dealer system. All of that existed. Um, and I found, you know, I mean, when I came to New York from New Zealand, I found, hadn't gone to college with all these people who had all been to Ivy League schools. It, it took me a few years to kind of like realize what that actually meant, that there was a difference in the US between what college you went to. In New Zealand, you know, everybody went to a state school, right? Mm. <laughs> so I didn't even realize the kind of what, what the rules of this kind of very snobby, clicky system were until I'd been around for a few years. But it was definitely very exclusionary and clicky, and people pretend that it was so open and democratic. But it was kind of, it was, I would say, a lot more snobby and closed than the world is now. Mm. You know, and much harder for an outsider to gain access to it than the world is now. So I think it's very false, you know, these idea, you know, that this kind of myth that like we were all artists together and everyone shared and was the same. They were incredibly competitive and shitty with each other. <laughs> In fact, Kathy was, you know, the worst defender. She was, she really thought that the only way to become recognized as a writer, as a woman at that time, was to be the only one in the room. And she was so annihilating of any other woman who came close to being a peer. Mm. You know, she assassinated them. There was this other writer, Constance de Jong, who she, they were very equal, they were friendly to a point, until she realized that she needed to get rid of Constance, and, and she did. Why do you think people are so obsessed with looking back on that time in a false way then? Well, I guess people get older and they, you know, they just kind of have this romance about their youth. It's so pathetic, right? <laughs> um, but it's always the last avant-garde. You know, I read about this group of friends, in, younger friends in LA, who started an alternative gallery called Tiny Creatures. And that's, that's in an um, orange book of essays I wrote called Where It Belongs. Um, and I kind of did a history of the alternative gallery that happened in, the gallery was happening around 07, 08. And I mean, they were the last avant-garde in LA. And there's this fantastic book, and I'm totally blanking on her name. Maybe you know this woman. She's a graphic, she's a graphic artist, cartoonist, Molly Crabapple. Okay. Yeah. Molly, do you know Molly Crabapple's book that just came out? She wrote this fantastic book about being in New York and London in the mid-aughts, in the club scene of the mid-aughts. And in her book, well, that's the last avant-garde. You know, so the people who are saying like the 70s and 80s were the last avant-garde, it's ridiculous. It's like, you know, every generation creates its own form of an avant-garde somewhere. Mm. Are you the kind of writer who can sit down and write for 5,000 words a day? Do you have a schedule? Do you make deadlines for yourself? How do you do it? Did you say four or 5,000 well, you know words a day? <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> How do they do it? 
100, what is the pill? <laughs> <laughs> what is your, where, where do you sit and how do you work? Um, there's the room. Mm. The room has to be dark. Dark. Um, no view. And definitely, like, the shades are drawn. There's a candle on the desk. Cigarettes are often involved. I don't smoke otherwise, but when I'm writing, cigarettes are involved. And, yeah, I do. I mean, like, but for me, a thousand words is the kind of stride to hit. You know, I feel like, you know, if I could do more than a thousand words, that's great. But, you know, I try not to give up until I've done a thousand words. But, I mean, certainly no more than, you know, 12, 13, 1400. I'm not a fast writer in that way. And neither am I a consistent, habitual writer. I mean... If I'm working on a book, I put myself on that schedule where like six days a week, I want to be in the room and I want to write those pages. But if I'm not working on a book, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I keep a diary still intermittently and I might want to write my diary. You know, all that increasingly gets supplanted by like keeping up with all the social media duties. Um, you know, or I might, you know, write an art piece, a journalistic piece. Um, it's only, but it's only writing a book that I would kind of like impose that torture of like sitting in a chair at least four or five hours a day. Mm. And in terms of um, semi-text and, and, and your involvement in that, what kind of work do you like publishing or editing and what do you really respond to? Um, well, it's extremely personal. Um, there's three of us. There's Sylvia. And Hedy Alcalti, who joined us in 04 via Morocco and Paris, and me. And the three of us are kind of like generationally kind of spaced out, so that kind of Hedy joined us at the end. And um, I brought a kind of female sensibility. Hedy brought a gay and Moroccan sensibility into the mix. And... It's a really short list of books that we publish, but we're always looking for something that really speaks to us at the moment. So you could say in a way that it's like a personal diary. The books that we publish are the books that we feel are the most pertinent to the present moment. Mm. And so the books that I published, the, the, that I personally have edited for Semiotext, um, Natasha Stagg's book Surveys just came out. And it's about a woman, Colleen, 23 years old, works in a mall in Tucson, Arizona, blogs at night. This is probably around 06, 07, 08. And she becomes kind of incrementally internet famous and then much more so when she hooks up with another male blogger online. And they become an item and they start, but then they go pro and start doing product placements and doing parties. And she writes about this kind of internet fame from the consciousness, from the inside out of the consciousness of it. And it's a very different kind of subjectivity. It's a really, really smart book. Mm. You know? Um, you said before that um, the one book that you don't publish is the kind of white, heterosexual male writing about himself, which you say is 80 to 90% of literature. Right, right. So everyone else can do that. As co-editors, we're doing this for free. We volunteer our time editorially to work on the book. So why would I volunteer my time to do that? I mean, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm, and I've done this now for like, what, 20 years on my own time. If I'm going to work on somebody's book, it's got to be that I feel, you know, 
it's really important for this book to come out, and, I, and, and somehow my name is on it, I've got to be the one to do it. Mm. Um, what, what books that you've published would you recommend to people to read? I'm sorry? What books that you have published would you recommend for the audience to read? Oh, um, what books on the semi-text list yeah. would I particularly recommend? Abdullah Taya is an amazing writer. Hedy is his editor and knows him from Morocco. He's the first openly gay writer from Morocco. He lives in Paris now. A lot of his work has been translated into English, and he's a fabulous writer. Um, Natasha Stagg's book has just come out, Surveys. We're hoping it might come out in another form in the UK. Um, I edited this Italian writer, Ludovico Pignani Morano. His book, Nicola Milan, came out a couple of seasons ago. And this is about a 25-year-old guy living in Milan who's like vaguely employed as a brand strategist, who has a completely asexual crush on an older guy and stalks him around Milan. And this is a fantastic book, too. So those three, I think, those would be my top picks. You mentioned the TV adaptation of I Love Dick. I mean, how do you, do you know what's happening with that process, or is that just... Well, I know they're shooting the pilot while I'm away, I weigh on this tour. They're gonna, just shooting the pilot in Martha, Texas, the first week of June, and I think it's gonna air in September. And I'd be very surprised, given the success of Transparent, if it doesn't go forward as a series. Mm. How do you feel about it? Well, I mean, um, I guess glad that it's happening, more glad than sad. Um, <laughs> curious as to what it will be like. Um, I, I think the casting is brilliant. They've got Kevin Bacon, and uh, the guy from Portlandia, Fred, is, um, is playing Silvera, and Catherine Hahn is playing my character. Mm. So it would be incredible to see those. It was, definitely, it's going to be embarrassing to sort of see a TV show, and there's just somebody with my name. I, I, <laughs> I really don't know what that's going to be like. <laughs> you find yourself in a situation now, um, 18, 19 years after I Love Dick, People have cottoned on to your writing. People are getting on board with what you're doing. You're gaining this huge readership and fan base. Um, I know you said you don't feel vindicated, but a lot of that, I think, is because a lot of the stuff that you write is quite ahead of its time, maybe, or you're very prescient or something. How did you get that way? How did it, you mean... How come it takes so long no, for people no. to like my books? <laughs> no, no. How, how, what do you think it is about you or your experience or the art and culture that you've taken in that makes you that little bit ahead of your time? Well, yeah, that's the same question. Why does it take so long? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like... Um, I think mo things move through the culture at different rates, and I'm working, you know, the people that are my friends and close peers, I guess, have been people in the art world and the intellectual world. You know, I teach at European Philosophy School, and so I'm in touch with people who are doing philosophy and critical theory and visual art, and so I don't know why. I mean, sometimes those exchanges of ideas, they, they, it takes a while to radiate out to other parts of the culture. I mean, I don't want to be rude because we're at a literary festival, but it has been said that the literary world is always at least a half century behind 
my art world. Mm. And I think that might be true. You know, things that are a given. I mean, just, just, just look at styles like cut up and collage, you know, that were early 20th century forms in visual art. Completely accepted, almost received ideas. You know, we're still new news at the end of the 20th century. And why is that? I mean, maybe it's because literature is so close to human speech that people really want it to be comforting and familiar. People are less accepting of something that's disjunctive and challenging in, in a narrative form because we want a comfort from narrative that we don't expect from visual art. Mm. We know that it's going to be scary with visual art. Thank you very much. Chris Christ, we're going to take some questions now. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. So we mightn't use the microphones, the roving mics. Yeah, so here's, here's what's going to happen. Um, I am hearing impaired. They'll mic your questions, which I hope you'll ask. I won't hear them. Let me try walking around the room to see if I can hear you before it goes through the mic. So, anybody have a question? How is Dick? <laughs> Hi. Hi. I asked how Dick was now. Have you made peace? Yeah. Okay. Just curious. Okay. Is that the only question? We <laughs> want to speak into the microphone as you're holding it. She asked, How is Dick? How's Dick? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I just asked if you made peace. Um, have you made peace with him? No. <laughs> I mean, as, as a person, no. I mean, he, uh, I never, after I called him up and invited him to write the introduction and he said no, we never spoke again. I didn't seek him out. Um, he teaches uh in another part of California now, you know, in another kind of direction, and you know, two and a half hours out of LA, but in another direction, and we don't cross. Um, I never meant the book as something against him. I don't even really believe the book is particularly about him, um, and I wish him well. Any other questions? I have another question. Yeah. Yeah. In the reverse situation, male female, male, writing an obsessive book about a woman, that woman would probably feel very scared, scared of violence. You think that, you think that a woman would feel frightened? Yeah. If a man was writing... Well, yeah, but a woman a subject of obsession like that. But I, th I think a woman would respond. She'd say, stop, you're freaking me out. No, she could And then if he probably. continues, then she would have good cause to feel scared. But I can't really imagine a woman sort of doing this kind of cryptic, mysterious thing of semi-inviting and semi-repelling and saying nothing. I mean, if a woman is bothered by something, she has every right to say stop and expect that the person will stop. But that's not what happened here. I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you read the book, you see that it continues to the point where they actually spend a night or two together. And, you know, and then, it, so, I mean, it, it continued to the point where they have a date and they sleep together. So it's not like he was hit over the head. He was a willing <laughs> participant. Um, but not in publishing when we get to privacy afterwards. 
Oh, you mean the publication? The publication of the book. Right. Well, I mean, I myself, if, if you're a writer, you doubtless are going to have other friends who are writers, and then you end up showing up in their books. <laughs> so I've been a character in people's books before. I've been a really good sport about it. I don't mind. I don't necessarily agree with what they say or their depiction of my character, but, like, hey, it's their book. And even a named character. I mean, Eileen Miles has put me as a named character in her book a couple of times and said things that's like, oh, fuck, you know, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I don't agree with you, but it's Eileen's book. So I'm not, you know, what are you going to do? Question right here. Did you consider writing it uh, in the third person or as somebody else? I mean, the whole decision to write as this person called Chris Krause, you talking about Chris Krause, you must have known, first of all, that Dick was, may or may not have been happy about it, but what was your impetus to actually use that whole kind of thing as the, the personal, rather than writing it just as a character? You mean writing it as... A you mean calling the, the first person thing really interesting? Right, the first you know, person. Yeah. Well, because the first person becomes such a subject in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, about um, about halfway through the book, or just before halfway, kind of almost the climax of the book is when she kind of reclaims the first person and says she never really felt comfortable using it because her life felt so compromised and she could never keep a diary because she gets so hung up on this sort of I, I, who am I? And somehow kind of writing about stuff to somebody else, she kind of got past that self-consciousness and was able to write in this, you know, kind of owning her own embodiment and experience and her right to use the I. So at that point, you know, I couldn't not keep the I in the letters, and so, but there had to be a comic element also where you take a step back from it and you kind of turn the writer of the letters into a bit of a clown. So that means using the third person, but I mean, why not use the, 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 the everything else was real, so why not, real, why not use our real names? You know, when I talk about the book now, when I talk about the character in the book, I refer to her as Chris. But when I talk about the writing of the book, I say I. Yeah. Um, I, I read the book a while ago, so my memory might be a little fancy. But I was wondering, in the part of the book, you talked about maybe making a video of Dick getting the, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, of getting <laughs> the letters out. I was wondering if you had actually done that, or would you consider doing a video of that in the near future? Oh, you mean sending the letters? Sending the letter and Dick coming to collect the letters from the post. Oh. Because in the, okay. in the book, there was a bit about it that you said that you wrote to Dick and said, would you be interested in participating in that? Oh, oh we proposed some kind of art project. Yes. Yes, that's a joke. And um, <laughs> no, that art project never came to be. No, I think, you know, having had such a bad experience with making and exhibiting films, I'll never make another film. <laughs> Would you consult and let somebody do Yes, it? I mean, someone else is welcome to. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. I had read a lot about I Love Dick before I read I Love Dick, and something that surprised me was how little focus there is on the art history element of it, or the, the sort of the essay on Kike art, and I was wondering how you felt about the fact that that bit of the book 
is, is receives much less emphasis than the bit that's about your personal relationship with Dick and Silver. Right. Well, I mean, that's why it became a book. I mean, if it just stopped with like, Dick, I love you, my palms are sweaty, you're so great, why won't you call me? That wouldn't have made much of a book. Um, it was only when that kind of writing led to writing about topics that felt important to me that I realized it was a book. And so the art historical part that, be I mean, actually, it's the art historical part, frankly, started in a pretty dumb way. I realized that, like, you know, I was getting a little repetitive with the crush, but he was an art critic, and so, okay, if you have a boyfriend or a prospective boyfriend, you should share his interests. <laughs> so you can talk about something that's interesting to him. So it's like, okay, I'll go see some art. But then I started, you know, writing about the art when I went to the Eleanor Anton show. So that was like something kind of turned over, and that felt, that op a door opened at that time, definitely. Definitely. And somehow I learned how to look at art, which had been a mystery before. Any other questions? Okay, that's great. Oh, one. Yes. I was wondering about the myths that you want to show in your newest book. Is it more important to show what the myths are from the 70s and 80s, or more the myths that Kathy Aker has built around her, that you want to strip her of her, her image, oh. in a way? No, I don't want to strip Kathy of her image. I mean, it's not a character assassination of Kathy, and it's not a takedown. I really admire her accomplishment as a writer, and particularly her early work. I think, you know, I mean, obviously she was a genius. And, you know, maybe to me the second half of her work is not so readable. The first half of the work where she's inventing herself as a writer was absolutely brilliant. Um, so no, it's a much more kind of... To be truthful about a person who's often lied about themselves is actually paying a much greater homage to that person than accepting the lies, I think. Just as if you discuss a person's failure in the same way that you discuss their successes, it makes the successes that much more meaningful. That's what you also say in I Love Dick, that you take the failure of the film and you have to reincorporate it, right? Yeah. Yes. All right, as the, the filmmaker Stan Brackage, this came up in one of the interviews with one of Kathy's ex-boyfriends. Um, the filmmaker Stan Brackage once said, the truth is always so much more interesting. And I believe that's true. Yes. I have two totally unrelated questions. The first one is, um, how did your relationship with Silver change when people wanted to address questions to you because they were now interested in your books and your... Um, well, it did change. Yeah. Did you know, I mean, did you, was there like a moment, I suppose, when you noticed, when you know, because you just talked quite vividly about feeling disillusioned with your life because you would, you were sort of this peripheral... Uh, you know, nobody wanted to answer your question. They wanted to talk to your uh, right. your spouse. Did you? Is there a moment that you remember where you suddenly realized everybody wanted to speak with you? 
Well, when I moved to L.A., you know, um, and this is like also happens in the book, she moves to L.A. alone because a friend offers her a teaching job, and she's the first time living alone. And I remember like going around L.A., you know, and I was living alone now, and people looked at me when they talked, and it's like I almost wept. It was like, it was just so gratifying to feel like I existed. My, my second question was, uh, if the art world is sort of 50 years in advance of, of literature, is there something going on in the art world now that you think is going to appear in literature in some point in the future? Uh, that would be really hard to put my finger on. Um, who are my favorite artists? I don't know. Um, who have I written about lately? Um, Oh, gosh, that's too hard a question. Can I come back to that after a couple of easy ones? <laughs> Thanks. Yes? In the book, Silver seemed to be quite comfortable, not comfortable, but he seemed to go along with your writing the letters. Do you think if the situation was reversed and you were in Silver's position, you would have been as, I don't want to say enthusiastic, but would you have been as willing to go along with the plot as he was? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. And um, my third novel, Turper, is almost like the prequel to I Love Dick. And it, you know, because it is a preposterous situation. I mean, what husband would collaborate with his wife on love letters to a third party? And um, it has everything to do with Sylvia's history as a child survivor of the Holocaust, um, which colored everything about his life, including his relative absence from his life, for most of it, his relationship with his daughter, everything. So in Turper, I write a lot more about that history, kind of butted up against like 90s history, the, um, the breakdown of the Soviet bloc countries and the kind of beginning of the New World Order. So, yeah, no, that's an exceptional situation. And the casting of the TV show, they make the two the same age. So the Silver character is not European. He doesn't have this trauma background. He's just like a little career academic. And uh, so obviously that's more kind of attractive and sexy for the two actors being the same age. But it's also, it loses a lot, you know to lose the kind of historical element about Sylvia's character. Yes? Um, does that mean that in the series they want to imply a more homosexual relationship between Sylvia and Dick? Because I felt at the end of the book that Dick might have been also maybe interested in Sylvia in another way than, or maybe more interested even in Sylvia than in um, Chris. Oh, you mean like like actually there's a kind of homoerotic thing going on between some... I don't know, maybe they'll do that. I know in the pilot script already, um, the Chris character is flirting with this bald Ike who's in charge of the ranch. So there's definitely going to be a lesbian thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> now back to the question about literature <laughs> and art. <laughs> um... I think in literature, Tom McCarthy is someone who's acutely aware of that question, too. And he does these collaborations with the philosopher Simon Crutchley. And a lot of their work sort of speaks to that time lag between the visual art world and, you know, 
uh, Tom McCarthy kind of started with one foot in the art world, and he did that project. What was it called? The Necro. Uh, not necromancy, like 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 not like not narcolepsy, like like when you're in love with death. What's that? Uh, like a necrophiliac, right? He had some kind of necro, necro something kind of manifesto. I mean, he he and Simon Christley wrote this kind of fake manifesto for literature, and it had a lot to do with these questions about you know literature and discourse kind of catching up to the nature of consciousness in the world that's more reflected in its fragmentation and visual arts. Um, yeah, and certainly, certainly kind of, you know, um, art, that, art that gives you the sensation of simultaneously moving through levels of depth is something that I don't really see a literary analog for. Okay, thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute uh, privilege and a joy to, to hear you speak. And thank you, everybody here, for coming. Chris Christ, everyone. <laughs>